It's 8 o'clock. Good morning. This is Northern Light for Thursday, January 26th. I'm Monica Sandreski. And I'm Todd Moe. The death of a Haitian migrant has renewed attention to a popular, unofficial U.S.-Canada border crossing in Clinton County. We'll talk with a Canadian reporter who's covered migration, human rights, and border issues for several years. For Christian Richard, you know, I think, unfortunately, what happened to him is, you know, really at the intersection of a lot of these issues that we've been seeing for years and years. It's the worst consequence that can happen. Also on the show, the Attorney General's office is investigating the violent arrest of a black man by police in Binghamton. Governor Hochul wants lawmakers to adopt her idea to make some changes to New York's bail reform laws. But legislative leaders say a hearing next week should provide more clarity. Our committees will be having a joint hearing to go over data uh, at the end of January, where we will again have some context where we begin to discuss what, if anything, should be done. And a new exhibit at the Tannery Pond Community Center explains how skiing came to North Creek in the 1930s and has flourished. All that's coming up on Northern Light. Stick with us. Broadcast of Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio is supported by Cronin's Golf Resort, proudly supporting NCPR year-round as a service to the community. Cronin'sGolfResort.com and by AdirondackExplorer.org and the AdirondackAlmanac.com, seeking solutions to the Adirondack Park's challenges in print and online. This is Northern Light. I'm Monica Sandreski. And I'm Todd Moe. The recent death of a Haitian migrant has renewed attention to a popular unofficial border crossing between northern Clinton County and Quebec. Since 2017, thousands of migrants have used Roxham Road to cross into Canada and claim asylum because of a loophole in an agreement with the U.S., Kerr Chapman spoke with a Canadian reporter who's been covering the issues for several years. The main driver of migrants using unofficial border crossings like Roxham Road is the safe third country agreement between the United States and Canada. Verity Stevenson with CBC News Montreal says it requires asylum seekers to claim asylum in the first country they land in. But the loophole of that agreement is that if a person crosses into one of the countries, so say Canada, um, outside of an official port of entry, then because it's it's like they're all they find themselves already in that country in Canada, uh, they can claim asylum. The Roxham Road crossing has become so popular that Canada built a police outpost just north of it. Officers stationed there take the migrants into custody, and those who make what are deemed eligible asylum claims can remain in the country until their claims are processed. But they've been running into delays and obstacles. Stevenson says there are months-long waits and complicated application processes for work permits. Legal aid lawyers tasked with helping migrants in Quebec are understaffed and overworked. And asylum seekers struggle to live on the social insurance checks they're provided. That means many migrants, even those who've landed jobs in Canada, have started to cross back into the United States. But Stevenson says there's no outpost near Roxham Road on the U.S. side. 
there's no place where they're met by some kind of agent who can, you know, if they're having a health issue or whatever, something can happen. So what advocates say is that it's, it's much more dangerous to cross into the U.S. from Canada irregularly. So migrants may have to deal with cold weather, getting lost, or reliance on smugglers. One Haitian migrant attempted to cross back into the United States at the end of last year. Fritznel Richard wanted to reunite with his family before Christmas. Authorities found his body in Quebec near the Roxton Road border crossing earlier this month. Stevenson says Richard and his wife have two children. They have an 11-year-old son who's actually still in Haiti. Um, He was undergoing surgery when his father was found dead. Um, We also know that uh, after the couple left Haiti, they lived in Brazil for a little while, um, which is a popular destination for for migrants looking for work. Um, And there they had a a child who is now 19 months old. Um, After that, uh, they went to the United States where uh, they have some family members. and they decided to, to claim asylum in Canada, so they may have thought that they'd have better chances of obtaining permanent residency and ultimately citizenship. And so they crossed with, um, with their, their baby, uh, my understanding is, just over a year ago at Roxham Road. Right, right. And, and then what do we know about you know, what led up to his death and how he died? So his wife had crossed back into the United States a few months before that um, because she had some kind of really serious health issue. We don't know exactly what, but she wanted to be with family for that. And she also said that they were really struggling in Canada um, because of these delays in getting a work permit. He wanted to come and be with her. Um, And so what we know is that he essentially got lost in crossing and, um, you know, with the winter weather and so on, police believe that he died of hypothermia, essentially. Mm-hmm. And and you also reported on um, a very sad, you know, the a phone call that he had with her as well. Can can you tell me a little bit more about, about that? What we know is that, you know, her last conversation with Fritznel uh, Richard, with her husband, was he called her from the border, he was lost. Um, He said that he wasn't feeling well and that it seems that already half of his body was frozen. And so he was essentially calling her to say goodbye. And, you know, she was saying, call 911, call for help, but he was too worried about getting uh, deported to back to Haiti. And so he he was too afraid to... uh, to call for help is what she told us. And so, you know, he said, I'm dying. I love you. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely terrible. The lawyers that you spoke with, what solutions do they see um, to make, you know, crossing the border safer for asylum seekers or even to make, I guess, Canada more an attainable place for them to settle, you know? Well, the main thing people bring up is the um, Safe Third Country Agreement that I mentioned earlier, and is now has actually made its way to the Supreme Court in Canada. So a number of human rights groups have challenged the constitutionality of this agreement between the United States and Canada. Um, And so that decision from the Supreme Court is pending on whether it has to be um, abolished in Canada or not. But 
they're saying that that loophole really prompts people to cross irregularly and um, has people making all kinds of risks. And so what Stéphanie Valois, this immigration lawyer we spoke with, said is that um, that she believes that people should just be able to claim asylum at official ports of entry. She doesn't think that that would necessarily um, mean that even more people would be coming. She doesn't think that it would affect the number of people coming necessarily, but it would just make the process um, safer for people and also mean that they would be able to, you know, cross the border in different provinces in Canada and and maybe uh, have, there would be a, more of a distribution of, of people um, throughout Canadian provinces because right now there is a concentration in Quebec and the Quebec government has said that it it doesn't have the resources to help all of these people. Um, so that's a factor as well. Mm-hmm. And what else do you think people should know about, you know, what the obstacles, you know, faced by asylum seekers in Canada and also, you know, Fritznell Richard's story? Well, I think, you know, what a lot of the advocates have said is this has been happening um, since 2017, that we've really seen a surge in migrants claiming asylum in Canada. And they've said that the government response just hasn't been adequate for the people crossing into the country. So that it sort of hasn't adjusted its immigration processes fast enough to make up for the demand. um, And that it's a humanitarian issue, a human rights issue because of Canada's finding of the Geneva Convention, um, which lifts um, you know, a, a number of human rights um, that the country really has to respect in in offering people asylum. Um, and so for Fritnel Richard, you know, I think, unfortunately, what happened to him is, you know, really at the intersection of a lot of these issues that we've been seeing for years and years. And it's, it's the worst consequence of, you know, that can happen. Um, and it did. CBC News reported that a funeral was held in Montreal to honor Richard on Sunday. Most of the attendees were also Haitian. His wife watched via Zoom as she is unable to re-enter Canada. Kara Chapman, North Country Public Radio. You're listening to Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio. It's 8-11. Good morning, I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandreski. Coming up, we'll preview a few of the events at the Tannery Pond Community Center in North Creek this weekend, including the kickoff to their Winter Coffee House series. More on that coming up in just a few minutes here on Northern Light.
Music by the Adirondack Harper, Martha Gallagher. Northern Light is supported by Gray and Gray and Associates, CPAs, a proactive accounting and financial services firm in northern New York, with offices in Canton, Potsdam, and Spring Hill, Florida, graycpas.com. And by Renew Architecture and Design, offering custom design services from the St. Lawrence River Valley to the Adirondacks. More at renewarchitecture.com. A man was arrested in Tupper Lake last night following an hours-long standoff at the local Stewart's. According to WWNY 7 News in Watertown, police responded to a report of a suspicious man yesterday afternoon. There was talk in the community that he had made a bomb threat to Stewart's employees that led to an evacuation order for the surrounding area. Hours later, police took 39-year-old David A. Payrot of, of Tupper Lake into custody. State police told WWNY-TV that no explosives were found, no charges were announced last night, and no one was injured in the incident. The violent arrest of a black man by police in Binghamton is prompting an investigation by New York's Attorney General. Binghamton Mayor uh, Jared Graham says he's opposing a proposal to hire a third party to investigate the incident. WSKG's Vaughn Golden has details. The New York Attorney General's office confirmed this week that it is conducting an investigation into the arrest of Amiel Waddell. A Binghamton police officer was seen kneeling on Waddell's neck in the early morning hours of New Year's Day in the city's downtown. The Democrats on Binghamton City Council are introducing legislation to hire an independent firm to look into the arrest. They include Councilwoman Angela Riley. She thinks a third party would provide the most transparency and properly ensure the department is held accountable. We want as elected officials to ensure that we are prioritizing the needs of our constituents. Our our constituents want to see that something is being done. Binghamton Mayor Jared Cram says now that the Attorney General's office has confirmed it's investigating, the Democrats' call for an investigation is, quote, moot. He says he'd reject the legislation even if it made it through the Republican-controlled city council. A separate internal investigation into the arrest by Binghamton police remains ongoing. The officer remains on administrative duties. Waddell appeared in court last week. He pleaded not guilty to charges of resisting arrest and disorderly conduct. Investal on Vaughn Golden for North Country Public Radio. Governor Kathy Hochul says she will press the state legislature to adopt her plan to further revise the state's controversial bail reform laws. But legislative leaders remain reluctant to make more changes without better data on the law's true effects. Karen DeWitt uh, reports. The 2019 law ended many forms of cash bail. Critics believe it's contributed to a crime spike. They say the statute needs to be amended to allow judges more discretion if they believe that a defendant might be dangerous if they're released before their trial without having to post bond. Hochul, whose opponent in the closely contested governor's race last November made a campaign issue out of the bail reform laws, is responding to the criticisms. In her State of the State message, she proposed revisions to the law to make it easier for judges to set bail for more serious crimes. The judge should have more discretion and be able to consider more factors than simply whether or not the individual is likely to return to court 
when they're required to. Hochul says the way the statute is written creates conflicts for judges. The law requires that they must consider what are known as the least restrictive means that are necessary to ensure that a defendant returns for their court date. But another part of the law, amended in 2022, permits judges to consider other factors when deciding whether to set bail. They include whether the alleged crime included use or possession of a handgun or if domestic violence was involved. We have an inconsistency in the law right now. Hochul says the proposed tweaks to the law do not undermine the fundamental premise behind bail reform, which she says is to prevent people from long stays in jail simply because of income inequality and their inability to pay for bail. Because individuals accused of low-level crimes, petty crimes, should not have to be sitting in Rikers Island for three years awaiting their day in court. Democrats who hold supermajorities in both houses of the legislature are reluctant to sign on to further revisions to the law. Senate leader Andrea Stork-Cousins says the original law was limited to ending bail for misdemeanors and nonviolent felonies. She says judges have always had the ability to impose bail for people accused of more serious crimes. The Senate leader says a hearing on the effects of the law to be held January 30th will provide more clarity. Our committees will be having a joint hearing to go over data uh, at the end of January, where we will again have some context where we begin to discuss what, if anything, should be done. Senator Zelnor Myrie is one of the several progressive-leaning senators who would need to back Hochul's proposed changes for the bail reform revisions to be approved. Myrie says he's reserving judgment on the proposal for now, but he says any efforts to curb crime must also include plans to lift more people out of poverty. Any discussion on public safety should also be including prevention of crime, should be attacking the root causes of crime, giving people a job, housing, educational opportunities. Senator Myrie is the sponsor of a measure known as Clean Slate. It would seal the conviction records for people found guilty of nonviolent crimes and who have completed their time in prison or on parole. He says it would eliminate barriers to housing and employment that many people with criminal records face. But he says he's reluctant to change the laws to respond to what he says are anecdotes and fear tactics by the opponents. Republicans who are in the minority party in both houses say that Hochul's proposal doesn't go far enough and that the entire law should be repealed. Among them is Senator Tom O'Mara. He's a ranking member of the Senate Finance Committee and is also on the Judiciary and Codes Committees. Is it a step in the right direction? Small step, I believe. I don't think that's going to be enough. Uh, to reverse this dangerous trend that we have going on today. The governor will have some leverage to get her proposal approved by the legislature during the upcoming budget season. Last year, the governor held up the spending plan for nine days after the due date until reluctant lawmakers finally acquiesced and agreed to some bail reform changes. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. Lake Placid housing development used by staff of the World University Games is being prepared for its long-term residents. According to the Adirondack Daily Enterprise, the goal is for Mackenzie Overlook tenants to move in March 1st. Its 60 units will be assessed by contractors and cleaned once the game is staffed and their belongings are moved out. Mackenzie Overlook is an affordable housing development whose rents are income-based. The property manager tells the Enterprise she's still in the process of vetting tenants. 
The Warren County Office of Emergency Services has launched a new cell phone app to help keep residents informed during emergencies. The Ready Warren County NY app will allow the county to send push notifications to its users about emergency situations and related information. The county says notifications can often get through when text or calls cannot or when cellular data is unavailable. The app also provides connections to sites with information about power outages, weather conditions, wildlife uh, wildlife, uh, excuse me, wildfire risk and stream levels. It's available for free in the Apple and Google app stores. The Plattsburgh City Council has voted to move forward with a riverfront project. According to the Plattsburgh Press Republican, the council awarded a construction bid for the Saranac River Walk. The project includes a new concrete boardwalk that will run along the bank of the Saranac River between Broad and Bridge Streets downtown. The Press Republican reports it will cost $1.6 million, which will be covered by Downtown Revitalization Initiative grant funds. The city has said construction on the Riverwalk is expected to begin this spring. Two foundations that support essential services for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities in the North Country have merged. The JRC Foundation and the Foundation of St. Lawrence Nysark announced their consolidation Wednesday. They'll now operate as the ARC Jefferson St. Lawrence Foundation, which administers and raises funds. Foundation Executive Director Michelle Carpenter says the unification will allow them to expand fundraising efforts in both counties and better assist those who use the ARCS programs. You're listening to Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandreski. In just a minute, ski exhibits and a little music for a Sunday afternoon. That's coming up in just a few minutes here on Northern Light. After that, stick around for Bird Note coming up at 842. But first, Todd has a look at the weather for us. We're still under a winter storm warning for much of the region uh, or a winter weather advisory through 7 o'clock tonight with combination of snow and some freezing drizzle at times today. Winds out of the south-southwest gusting up to 25, 30 miles per hour. There are a number of schools with delayed start times, two-hour delays. You can find that list online this morning at ncpr.org. Clinton Community College in Plattsburgh is closed for the day. Uh, the Ogdensburg Public Library opening at 11 o'clock this morning. There are more delays and uh, uh, other cancellations because of the weather. And check that list out. There's a link at ncpr.org. Snow should taper to flurries later tonight with lows in the teens tonight. And then tomorrow, some snow showers first thing in the morning. And then the weather service says partly sunny by the afternoon. High tomorrow in the 20s. And right now in Canton, we have snow, 27 degrees. 
With the World University Games in the rearview mirror and the Empire State Games coming up, a gallery in North Creek is honoring winter sports, especially skiing. I cut up with Candace Murray, director of the Tannery Pond Community Center, to talk about their exhibit, Daring Descents, Images of Winter Sports. So it includes both artifacts and real art. So artifacts were on loan to us from the North Creek Depot Museum, as well as the Johnsburg Historical Society. From them, we have old skis and traditional skins. We have a full outfit from the 1980 Olympics that the volunteers wore, like a warm-up outfit and boots. So a lot of old artifacts, as well as old photos and old prints from the early 1900s. And then we have art that was made by various artists. So we have one artist, Alicia Grubin, who is from Saratoga Springs area, but she does pastels. So she has, I think, seven items in the exhibit. They're all pastels, but of winter sports. We have a photographer slash their metal prints. Um, They're very interesting. Her name is Nancy Battaglia, and she also was a high-level photographer for things like Sports Illustrated, Newsweek, and others. So we have some of her photographs that were in articles, uh, major magazines. Um, We have the marketing director from Gore Mountain. She has produced several woodcuts that are really beautiful. Her name is Julia Johnson. And then we have Mike Prescott, who makes very interesting Adirondack picture frames. So some um, Gore items are framed in his in his frame. Murray says the exhibit is a multimedia way to honor all the outdoor enthusiasts in the region. And for her part, Murray does some of her own sports photography. So she's got an eye for the pieces in the exhibit. The stuff that Nancy Bataglia has been able to do. So for instance, she has a skeleton um, athlete coming down a track and she has, with her, you know, tremendous lens and shutter speed she's able to capture the the athlete's face right in the motion and you can imagine if they're going 70 or 80 miles an hour that um to be able to capture that in a photograph and be able to see it really clearly as to what their face their facial expression is at that moment um it's pretty neat what she was able to do Um, and there's another um photograph where she is uh, photographing cross-country skiers But she has, the picture is of some cross-country skiers through the legs of another cross-country skier. So it's quite vantage point. She was probably pretty low in her, like she was kneeling down or something. And as they're coming up a hill, there's an athlete in the front. And but through the legs of that athlete, you can see the other athletes competing behind them. So it's just really kind of neat photography. The exhibit, Daring Descents, Images of Winter Sports, is on display at the Tannery Pond Community Center in North Creek through February. You can check it out this weekend if you stop by for some of Tannery Pond's other events. Saturday, they've got a Valentine's Craft Day for Kids. That's from noon to 2, and it's free. Then Murray says on Sunday, they're kicking off their annual Sunday afternoon winter concert series. And they're coffee house style. So depending on the number of tickets we sell, um, we usually have round tables and folks can drink coffee, have some snacks. If they are interested, they can get up and dance. So it's kind of a fun Sunday afternoon throughout the winter uh, event every other Sunday. Are you usually one of the people on the dance floor? 
Me, myself? <laughs> I yeah, mean, you. Anytime there's good music, I don't mind moving. So it's fun to, it's fun to, um, I, I probably won't be up front there, but I will move in the back. <laughs> you don't know how to treat a soul and it shows. This is a little preview of this Sunday's concert. Ethan Crowley is only 18, but he does his own producing from his studio in Saratoga Springs. We're getting a peek at his song, Losing My Mind. up on 8.30. That's Northern Light for this Thursday, January 26th. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandreski. Be well.